Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Acts, which is where we are going to be spending our time uh, together this morning. I asked my middle school basketball team, what is it that makes the Mona Lisa, the, the painting the Mona Lisa, so special? It's maybe the most iconic painting of all time. Why is it worth so much money? Why is it considered to be the best work from da Vinci, this man who has lots of brilliant art that he created? Well, in many ways, it's considered to be so iconic and considered to be his best work, and it's worth so much money, and it's so heralded because it was something new. People had not seen it before. There were shading techniques that da Vinci used in the painting that created uh, a realistic-looking face, and people had never seen a face like that in a painting before, so it kind of blew everybody away when it hit the scene. People had never seen an artist use an optical illusion to insinuate a smile, even though the person in the painting is not smiling, which is what happens if you look at the Mona Lisa. She's not smiling, but you think she's smiling because of an optical illusion da Vinci used. So all of that made it new. And Mona Lisa was popular because it reflected the glory of the artist. People saw it, they went, that's beautiful. Who made this thing, right? Oh, da Vinci made this thing. This guy is brilliant. And then it took off. It is art that makes the observer stop and say, whoever painted this has done a new and glorious work. With that in mind, I want you to consider these words from the French reformer John Calvin at the beginning of his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, now, here is most lively painted out the beginning of Christ's kingdom, as it were the renewing of the world. Here is, therefore, set down both the beginning and also the increasing of the church of Christ after his ascension, whereby he was declared to be king both of heaven and earth. Calvin's saying what we have in Acts is a painting inspired by the Holy Spirit, poured out through the pen of Luke, showing us how the kingdom of Christ began to grow and spread and advance after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. A painting that shows the Father God orchestrating His eternal plan of redemption through the risen and exalted Christ and through the power of the Spirit using the Word of God to bring about salvation, creating the church who were then sent out as witnesses to these things. Way back in the summer of 2020, we started a verse-by-verse study of Luke that we, by God's grace, wrapped up in January of this year. This book, the book of Acts, is the sequel to Luke's Gospel. And in it, Luke is showing how Jesus' kingdom mission carries on after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. That is the big picture of the book of Acts. That's what the painting is about. The period of time that it covers is about 30 years. In that time, you'll see the gospel move all the way from Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, to Athens, the epicenter of philosophy, to Ephesus, the epicenter of magic and sorcery, to Rome, the epicenter of the ancient world. And as Luke tells us the story, he doesn't just want us to see how the church began. That's part of it, right? That's the big purpose in his writing. But underneath that, he has other bullet points on his agenda. Luke writes not only that we would see how the church began, but that we would have clarity and certainty as readers. 
He wants us and Theophilus, the one that he wrote to, we'll get to that in a moment, to have assurance that God is accomplishing his purposes through Christ. He is bringing salvation to Israel and to the nations. He wants us to see how God is continuing to keep his old covenant promises in the genesis of the New Testament church. Luke also wrote to relieve ethnic tension in the church. We're going to see in the book of Acts a lot of non-Jewish people start to come to faith and start to flood into the church, and the Jewish believers didn't really know how to deal with that. It brought a lot of uh, interesting dynamics, like, well, if you guys are going to show up and you're going to eat food that we have deemed to be unclean for thousands of years at this table, how are we going to feel about that? And if we say, you can't eat that food at this table, how are you going to feel about that? Right? There's all sorts of things like that, and Luke is showing us how God led his church through it. Luke writes to glorify the triune God. Acts is a triune book. The Father is governing. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the subject of the church's witness, and the Holy Spirit is the one behind the work. And so the full power of the Godhead is on display in the earliest stages of church history in Acts. And finally, Luke writes as an apologist. Because Christianity from the very beginning has been under attack. Under attack from governing officials. Under attack from established Judaism. Under attack from false pagan religions. Under attack from Satan. And Luke writes as an apologist, showing us not only that the gospel is truthful, but showing how the gospel was sustained under these attacks. There's other background information we could get into, don't have time for it this morning. We did a little podcast episode, if you go to our Spotify feed or Podbean, wherever you're getting our our podcasts at, uh, if if you go, we have an, an episode called Introduction to Acts, where we go through some interpretive rules and things like that. Go listen to that, some of that will come up as we go throughout it, we just don't have 40 minutes for intro this morning, okay? Why now? Why Acts and why now? The answer is not simply because we went through Luke and we should go through part two, right? We saw the first movie, we should see the second one, right? It's not just that. Indeed, we had a plan to go from Luke uh, and and then go into Acts from the very start when we made a decision to to study Luke back in 2020, but, but, you know, God could have changed that plan and, and, and changed our plans, but we feel it's still Acts. Why? Well... 2020 was a tumultuous time. There was a lot of uncertainty. A lot of things have happened in the last three years. We didn't know what happened, right? But one of the things we definitely didn't know what happened is that we as a church would get out of debt. We knew, you know, felt confident God would bring us out of that debt at some point, but we didn't know it would be this soon, that we would be out of debt as we stand here today, uh, March 12th, 2023. But God knew that. And I think that's important as he laid it on my heart to preach through Luke and Acts that right as we finish Luke and we're about to start Acts, God knew we're going to be getting out of debt right at the same time. And I think what Acts does is gives us a lot of what we need as we enter into a new and exciting season of ministry here because it shows us how the gospel spreads through the faithful witness of local churches just like this one. It shows us the purpose of local churches just like this one. It shows us what biblical community is supposed to look like in churches like this one. 
It shows us the elements that God uses to grow His kingdom. And these are things that we need to be shown because we do not know it all. We had a heavy building debt here. Through the faithful giving of our members, the Lord delivered us from it. Praise the Lord. That does not mean we have it all together. We don't. We need God's wisdom. We need the historical context of early church history. And we need the tales of God's faithfulness in this book. We need Acts. And so let's dive into it. First eight verses this morning. We'll see the foundation of the apostles' mission, the content of their mission, and the power behind their mission. And that will give us a framework to really understand this whole book that's going to follow. So Acts 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We begin with Luke addressing this individual named Theophilus. It's the same one we saw him address at the beginning of his gospel. Luke 1 verse 1 said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Same Theophilus there is the same Theophilus here. We don't know much about Theophilus. Some have argued that uh, Theophilus is uh, a wealthy nobleman that actually funded Luke's uh, research because he was a believer. He wanted a ordered account of uh, Jesus's ministry and his life and death and resurrection, and he wanted an ordered account of what happened in the early church. But we really don't know who Theophilus is. The first book that Luke refers to in verse 1, of course, is the Gospel of Luke. And in that Gospel, he dealt with Jesus' life on earth, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And you'll see it says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That is a summary phrase that encapsulates the work of Christ on earth. He preached the message of the kingdom and he did signs and wonders which confirmed his teaching and his claims. And Luke recorded all of that right up into the day of the ascension and the commissioning of the disciples for their work to carry on the mission. And then in verse 3, Luke seems to go backwards. In verse 2, we're talking about the ascension, right? The day he was taken up. But then in verse 3, we're back to talking about the resurrection and Jesus presenting himself as resurrected to the apostles, spending 40 days with them. Why is there this reversed shift where we go from talking about the ascension to going backwards to talking about the resurrection? 
Well, I think that it's happening because Luke is saying something about the mission that the apostles are going to be on throughout the book of Acts. And to get this, look at the end of verse 2. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles whom he had chosen. What commands are being talked about here? What command is handed out by Jesus to the apostles in Luke just before his ascension? Luke 24 verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's the command. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Every one of the gospel writers, it's not just Luke, Matthew and Mark and John, they also record similar words where before Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, he commissions his apostles to carry on gospel work. In each case, it's the resurrected Christ commissioning the apostles to take the message to the world. Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Mark 16, he tells them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And in John 20, 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Father sent me on this saving mission, and now I send you out with a saving message. So going back to Acts 1, right after Luke tells Theophilus that Jesus gave these commands to the apostles he has chosen, Luke does what? He points right to the resurrection. He points right to the reality that Christ rose from the grave, and that all these apostles were witnesses to this. He points to the fact that Jesus proved his bodily resurrection to the apostles in a myriad of ways throughout these 40 days, and he taught them about the kingdom. And the reason that Luke does this is because this mission that the apostles are going to go on finds its foundation in the empty grave. So teaching point number one, the foundation of the apostles' mission is the resurrection of Christ. All throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see him preaching And all throughout the book of Acts, the foundation of their message is the resurrection of Jesus. They're going to go on their mission mission in the authority of Christ, but the evidence that they stand on that proves their truth claims is the fact that there's an empty grave in Jerusalem that once held the body of Jesus and it no longer does. They go out and they proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. That is Jesus' plan for how the kingdom is going to advance. You see this in verse 8. But you will receive power when the uh, Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So as they witness to the ends of the earth, as the gospel is moving from Jerusalem to the nations, what are they witnessing to? To the resurrection. 
They're witnessing to the resurrection as proof that Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that He is the Messiah sent by the Father, that He is the only hope of salvation for Israel and for the entire world. We're going to see the apostles throughout Acts making serious claims, serious statements about the identity of Christ. Let me just give you three examples before you even get out of the first five chapters. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24, this is Peter preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Acts 4, they say, And there is no one, uh, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's an exclusive claim about salvation. Salvation is only in Christ. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles are told that they're not to be preaching anymore, and they say we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What would make Peter and the apostles so audacious as to claim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He is the only way you can be saved from the wrath of God, that you must repent and put your trust in Him? What would make them claim that He is sitting at the right hand of God as leader and Savior? These are audacious claims to make. What would make them look at the religious authorities and say, we have to keep preaching no matter what you tell us? It's the fact that they saw Jesus murdered, and they saw him get sealed away in a tomb. And then they saw him resurrect. And they spent 40 days hanging out with him and learning from him and eating with him in his resurrected body. And they never recovered from that in the most positive way possible. It messed up their lives. And it became the ground they stood on as they left everything behind for the sake of witnessing for Christ and building his church. It's the resurrection. Back in Luke 24, we saw Christ come to the apostles for the first time in, in the Vesper lights of Easter Sunday, right? He, he comes to them and they disbelieve for joy. They're like, there's no way this can be real. And so he eats fish in front of them to appeal to their logic. He's like, look, I can't be a ghost. I'm eating this fish and, and, and it's going into my stomach, right? He, he lets them touch his wounds and handle his body. He appeals to their physical senses. He reminds them of everything that He has taught them. He appeals to their hearts and minds. And by the time we get to Acts, Peter and John and the boys are not disbelieving for joy. They are witnessing for joy. They're convinced. And they are not going back. Nothing has changed for us as the people of God. We do not go out into the world proclaiming the gospel on the foundation of our intellect and our wisdom. And we do not go out into the world proclaiming the gospel on the foundation of mere words the way that other religions go about proclaiming their false systems of salvation. 
We do not go out into the world proclaiming the gospel on the foundation of our talents and our abilities to market the message well. No. We go out on the same foundation as Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. We go out witnessing to the reality of the resurrection. We go out saying that God sent Christ to do and to teach. And that Christ never sinned, but was delivered into the hands of sinful men. And He was crucified in the place of sinners. And He bore their punishment. And this atoning, substitutionary, sacrificial death is the only way to be saved from God's wrath. And somebody looks at us and says, how do you know that's true? And how do you know that Jesus is who He said He was? And and that He can actually do all of that for you. And our response is the same as the apostles'. He was dead in a tomb, he got back up, he walked out, and hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. And since he's the only one to claim to be the saving Messiah, and he proved it by conquering death, we obediently go and spread his word, and we look at you in the eye and say, yes, he can do everything that we're saying he can do for you. Everything. If somebody asks how we know our witness is true, our response is not because we feel it, not primarily. Because we had an experience. You know, the Muslims had an experience too, right? Hindus, they claim conversion experiences as well, right? They claim feelings and emotions just like us. It's not your happiness. You point to the objective evidence of the resurrection and you say, I know it's true because the grave is empty. And this book tells me all of that. You see Peter doing this in Acts 2. His foundational proof of the gospel's veracity of its truthfulness is the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let's keep going. Moving on from the foundation of the mission to the content. We know they stood on the resurrection as they preached and as they did the work of building the church, but what are they going to be preaching? We get a hint of it at the end of verse 3. It says that, Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God in those 40 days that he was with them. Speaking about the kingdom of God. As Jesus is spending this final period of time on earth with his disciples, teaching them in his resurrected body, what is he teaching about? The kingdom. It's the kingdom. Now go down to verse 6. What subject matter are the disciples so eager to understand just before Christ ascends? Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's the kingdom, right? They've just sat and learned from him for 40 days about the kingdom and his resurrected body. And now, as he is about to ascend to heaven, they're like, all right, this is it. Now, they're still thinking politically. They still are thinking he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to begin his reign. In other words, they aren't longing for Pentecost, the beginning of a mission. They're longing for the day of the Lord. They're like, all right, let's end the world. Let's begin the age of glory. They want the kingdom. They want it too soon, but they want it. And this brings us to our second teaching point this morning. The content of the apostles' mission is the kingdom of God. The content of their mission is the kingdom of God. The reason the apostolic company is itching for the kingdom the way they are is A, they're Jewish and they don't like Romans in their land. All right, that's there. Okay, we cannot ignore that. Peter was not cool with Caesar. All right, he didn't love the fact that Rome was occupying his land any more than you would like it if a foreign power came and occupied America. 
All right? But B, they believe Jesus should be the only one sitting on a throne and they believe everybody ought to bow down to him. Now, you and I believe that too. Or we should, if we're Christians, right? Nothing wrong with that desire. And they believe this about Jesus and they long for his reign because he's been teaching them about the kingdom. I think verse 6 is happening because verse 3 happened. But they don't understand that the time for the kingdom is not yet. In verse 7, Jesus says it's not for them to know the times and seasons. The Father has fixed those things in his authority. Mark 13, verse 32, Jesus says something similar. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Until that time comes, the apostles have work to do. They are to go to Jerusalem, they are to wait for the Spirit, and then they are going to be witnesses to the resurrected Christ to the end of the earth. And as they go about that work, they're going to teach the same thing that they were taught by Jesus. They're going to teach, and they're going to preach, and they're going to herald the message of the kingdom. And this is important for us. I want to take a few minutes on it. It's important for us because if the kingdom is the message the apostles are spreading all throughout the book, we better understand it or we're going to be lost as we read the rest of the book. And if Jesus gave the message of the kingdom to the apostles and they are to take that and to preach it, and the apostles gave it to us and we are to take it and preach it, then we better understand what we're supposed to be preaching. A nice working definition for the kingdom of God would be as follows. The kingdom of God is God's people living under God's rule in God's place. It's God's people living under God's rule in God's place. So in Genesis, you have God's people, Adam and Eve, living under God's rule, right? He's issuing commands, they're carrying them out, in God's place, Eden. It's perfect. And then sin and death come in with Satan and disrupt God's kingdom design where his people live under his rule in his place. Now God is recovering the kingdom for his people through his son Jesus. Jesus came to earth and he showed us what it looked like to live under the authority of the Father and to never sin. He lived as God's image-bearing vice-regent. And showed us this is what it looks like to rule well, to to live out the commands of God, to love God with all of your heart and your mind, your strength and your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He showed us the law of God in action perfectly. He succeeded in doing what the first Adam failed in. So when Jesus hits the scene in Luke, what's he preaching? Well, of course, he's preaching the kingdom, the thing that he has come to recover. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. You say, well, what is it? What's the message of the kingdom? What is this message of salvation that that God is using to bring his people back under his rule and his place forever. Of course, it's the gospel. It's it's the gospel that Satan and sin and death alienated you from God, made you an enemy of, of him and his kingdom, and he has sent his son, the king of the kingdom, to come and to rescue his people. Jesus lived a sinless life, submitted himself to a sinner's death. He died in your place as if he was the one that rebelled against God, as if he was the one who who rebelled against God's rule, 
And then he resurrected to take his heel and to step on the head of the kingdom's enemy, Satan, and to show the rescue that he is provided for the citizens of the kingdom is real. And anyone who repents and trusts in the death and resurrection of the king is brought into the kingdom. And Paul describes this in kingdom language in Colossians 1 when he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And one day, the king will return to establish the physical kingdom once and for all. Any enemies of the the king will be destroyed, while the citizens of the kingdom will be vindicated and will live and reign with the king forever. That's what Jesus proclaimed. And that is what the apostles were to proclaim. And if you read Luke's story, it is mapped out by the kingdom. Acts begins and ends with the kingdom. You have kingdom bookends. Acts 1 verse 3, we've already seen it this morning. Jesus appeared to them during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. You get to the end of the book. Paul's in Rome. What do we see? He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom message has gone all the way from Jesus and the apostles in Jerusalem to the political capital of the known world at the time, Rome. At the beginning, we have the kingdom being taught by Jesus. By the end, it's made it to Rome in the mouth of Paul. It's an important bookend. So we got the kingdom at the beginning and the end, but then throughout the narrative, we have kingdom milestones. In verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples that the gospel is going to move, the message is going to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as that happens throughout the story of Acts, the mention of the kingdom will serve as a milestone to see how the gospel is breaking through every geographical boundary. So in Acts 1-7, through we're mainly going to be dealing with how the gospel is moving in Jerusalem and Judea. But as you get to chapter 8, you have Philip, where? In Samaria, just like Jesus said, and he's preaching. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the gospel is on the move into Samaria. What is Luke sure to remind us of? It's the kingdom. Then the gospel begins moving beyond Samaria to the nations in Paul's missionary journeys. And with each stage of Paul's ministry, Luke is there to remind us what Paul is preaching. At the end of the first journey, Paul is traveling back to the places he's been evangelizing. He is encouraging them to be steadfast. And he says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The last time you see Paul as a free man in Ephesus in Acts 19, listen to what he's doing there. As he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And as Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and he's about to head to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, and the end of his story will really begin, there is Luke again to remind us of the purpose of it all. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Every key portion of Luke's narrative has this kingdom bookmark, this kingdom reminder. 
It is a thread that runs throughout Acts so the reader doesn't forget what the church is doing all this for. It is to proclaim the kingdom. It is to advance the kingdom. And we are no different. Everything that we do, from this, our Sunday morning gatherings, to midweek meals, to our our local mercy ministries, like our involvement with CareNet and the Peninsula Rescue Mission and our our own um, food pantry that we have here, all of it, all of it is for the kingdom. It is about proclaiming and advancing the kingdom of God. It is not about growing the brand of Seaford Baptist Church. No, it is about advancing the kingdom of God. And we do this because we understand that while Christ established the kingdom in His death and in His resurrection and His ascension, He has not consummated the kingdom yet. That is not going to happen until He returns. And what that means is that the work is not complete. Therefore, we must keep building. Jesus has told us of a day when the kingdom will be complete. He says in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And as He instituted the Lord's Supper with His disciples, He looks forward to that day. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. But that day hasn't come yet. God's rule has not been fully established yet on the earth. When it does happen, it will be even more glorious than we can imagine. But it hasn't come yet. When it does... The kingdom will be restored. It will be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. When I first became a Christian, and honestly through like my first three or four years of being a Christian, I would always think of heaven as just like we're all like in the sky in this like field of clouds and everybody kind of gets like a little real estate of cloud, I guess, and you play like a harp or whatever string instrument of your choice is and you just sing and I guess at some point we're going to eat and then we just keep singing and that's heaven. And that's not at all the picture the Bible gives us, right? That is much more just a cultural picture that's been painted for us. The Bible gives us a physical place that we're going to be with God. Here's Greg Gilbert on this. He said, God intends to create for His people a new world free of sin and death and sickness. War will end, oppression will cease, and God will dwell with His people forever. Never again will any of God's people suffer death, and never again will tears burn our eyes at a graveside. Never again will an infant live but a few days and then die. Never again will we mourn or hurt or weep. Never again will we long for home. Because we'll be home. We will be home on the new earth. God's people living under God's rule in God's place. But until that comes, God is adding to His kingdom one citizen at a time. And one day, the final citizen will repent and be transferred into the kingdom. The final name in the book of life will come into the kingdom. The final citizen will come in. The trumpet will sound. The skies will open. The Lord Jesus will return in glory for His church and lift her up and set her down in her eternal home. And we long for that. And we cry out Maranatha and we count down the days. But we don't simply wait. We work. We go on mission, carrying the same kingdom-preaching, kingdom-advancing work that Christ was doing. We carry that same work on 
proclaiming the repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the nations until He returns. And we cannot drift from this mission or we will find ourselves detached from the divine purpose that God has given us. We will lose our identity and morph into something other than a community of ambassadors representing Christ. I believe this is why most churches end up closing down. is because they drift from their purpose. They become something else at some point. We don't want to just be a religious people working on our own agenda. The world has enough of that. There's enough religious people just doing whatever they feel like they should be doing. No. Instead, we do what the Lord has told us to do in His Word, to proclaim the message of the kingdom. And we do not drift from it, not even for a moment, because we understand that this is what faithfulness is, and this is why we exist. Let's wrap it up. Final teaching point this morning. We've talked about the foundation being the resurrection and the content being the kingdom. Lastly, the power in the apostles' mission is the Holy Spirit. The power in their mission is the Holy Spirit. At the end of Luke 24, there are very specific instructions given to the apostles. We read them earlier. But at the end of those instructions, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, meaning Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. What is the promise of the Father that He's going to send upon them? What is this power from on high? Well, if you look at verses 4 and 5, we're told plainly what it is in Acts 1. It says, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he's telling them, you go to Jerusalem, you wait there, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is going to come upon you, which is the promise of the Father. This is an important moment in the history of redemption, an important important moment in, in Christian history, in church history. When John was baptizing at the Jordan River, he had told people that his water baptism was this precursor to a different type of baptism that was going to come. A double-edged sword sort of baptism that was on the way. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit or with fire. John with water, Jesus with the Spirit or with fire. Charismatics have interpreted this to mean that Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, which results in the tongues of fire that we see resting on the apostles in Acts 2. But that's not what's being talked about here. If you go to verse 17, that's really clear. Right? right after that, John says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so what that text is saying is you will either get baptized with the Holy Spirit or you will get baptized in the judgment of the fires of hell. That's what that text is saying. It's judgment language from John. Christ will come and you will receive His gracious baptism of the Spirit or you will receive His just baptism of fire. So then, the promise of the Father that the apostles are waiting on is the Spirit. They are followers of Christ. They are children of God. They are not going to be baptized with fire. They're going to be baptized with the Spirit. 
And Jesus told him that this is the way it would be. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, he said in John 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach these things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And it is the Spirit who is going to empower the work you see the apostles doing in Acts as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's the Spirit who's behind the movement of the gospel. It's the Spirit who is opening up the eyes of hearts to see the beauty of Christ so that they would repent and that they would come to faith. This reality is underlined by the fact that the Spirit is mentioned three times in just the first eight verses of Acts. So from the very start, Luke wants us to know it's the Spirit of God who is behind the mission. It's the same way for us, church. It is the same way for us. In the same way that the resurrection is the foundation for our mission, and in the same way that uh, the content of our mission is the kingdom of God, when we talk about the power behind our mission, it's the Holy Spirit. And I think we forget that sometimes. Sometimes we can start to think the power lies in our hands, that the power lies in our abilities, that the power lies in our wisdom. We live and serve here on the peninsula. Let me, let me talk straight to you, all right? We live and serve here on the peninsula. Not that I haven't been talking straight the whole time. But um, here on the peninsula, you can drive from this spot at 1311 Seaford Road, and you can be at like six mega churches within 20 minutes. We have giant churches around us on the peninsula, okay? By the way, I'm not upset about that, all right? Um, uh, many of those churches are preaching a good gospel, and, and I believe people are being saved there. But some of them are big and booming, and it's easy to drive by those churches and to go, my gosh, it's a six flags under Jesus over there, you know what I mean? And, and then there's these small churches that thousands of people drive past every day, and they don't think twice about them or the people who worship there or the pastors who shepherd there. I've never really had anybody come to me and say, you know, there's this little church of 70 that I passed the other day. I think we need to do what they're doing. Could we do that? No. Sometimes members will come to me and say, why don't we do what they're doing at the big church? It works for them. And by the way, I talk to other pastors. This happens to all pastors, right? That, that, that very often the members of the smaller churches that are driven past they come to their pastor and they say, why don't we just do what they're doing? You kind of tell yourself with that suggestion. Because what's tucked away in that question is a mindset that says, success in ministry lies in doing the right programs in the right ways. That's what's going to get us over the finish line. That's what's going to build the church. Brothers and sisters, that is not kingdom advancement. That's consumerism. That's what that is. That is how retail execs talk around board meeting tables. That is not how we talk around the church table. Because we know that the power in our mission does not lie in programs and planning. That doesn't mean we don't program and plan. But we know that the power for what we do here, it does not lie in our ability to execute things well or to do things the way we've always done them or to do them in some new and novel way. It doesn't. Programs and plans are nice vehicles for kingdom work, but the power is the Spirit of the living God. 
That is who advances the kingdom. That is who opens the eyes to the beauty of Christ. That is who regenerates a dead heart. People may say, well, you know, I came to Christ through the men's ministry of that church. The men's ministry of that church was a nice vehicle for you to come to Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit of God that opened your eyes up to who Jesus was, not the men in that ministry. It's the Spirit. What we do as the church is just ordinary things. They're extraordinary ordinary things, but they're ordinary things. Get up here each week, we preach, we pray, we serve, we disciple. Right? This is what we do on Sundays, what we do on Wednesdays, what we are doing throughout our week. Those are just ordinary things that God told us to do. It's just the basic New Testament plan for growing the church that he's given us. It's not new. It's not novel. It's not from some book that was written a year ago that's been a New York Times bestseller and that's just rinse and repeat and it'll grow your church in any context, in any place. No, no, no. We're talking about just the basic stuff God told us to do. It's ordinary. It's extraordinary because it's from him, but it's ordinary in the sense that it's just the stuff we do week in, week out. But we trust that God will take those ordinary things and he will resurrect the dead with them. And he does. And because of that, your elders, myself and Pastor Ben and Pastor David, we don't fret about numbers, we fret about faithfulness. We fret about faithfulness. I was talking to a brother, I don't mind saying this to you, I was talking to a brother recently. He said, man, at my church, he said, right now everything's exploding. We got this happening, this happening, this happening. I believe that's going to happen for Seaford soon. You're going to grow so much, you're not even going to be able to contain it. I said, brother, I hope not. He said, why? I said, because we've been down that road. We've done so fast it can't be contained. I want slow, steady, faithful, and healthy. That's what I want. Slow, steady, faithful, healthy. We'll do the ordinary things. We'll till the soil the way he told us to, and we'll trust the Spirit to bring the growth. That we preach, we pray, we serve, we disciple, we do the biblical New Testament things. He's going to watch over the faithfulness of this church with his faithfulness. That's the best position we could be in. And so we just must be a yielded and obedient people who are willing to change the method for the gospel's sake, but never willing to change the gospel, recognizing it's the Spirit who leads us. We listen to Him, and it's His power in our message. The band's going to come back up. And as they are coming up, I don't know if the choir's coming too. Is the choir coming too, Ben? choir's coming too. We've got a whole, whole gaggle of people coming to the stage here as I wrap it up. But I want you to see that what lies ahead here for the apostles in this book is them going on mission, witnessing with the resurrection as their foundation, preaching the kingdom as their content, relying on the power of the Spirit as they do it. And as they are going about that work, you will see at times one person coming to Christ, at times thousands of people coming to Christ. They till the soil, they're faithful, and the Spirit brings the growth. But as we look at that, the work that lies ahead for the apostles isn't just the work for the apostles. It's our work. See, let me tell you about the end of the book of Acts on our first day studying it. When you get to the end, we're going to get to chapter 28. You're looking for it to wrap up nicely, and it doesn't. It just ends. It's like Paul's there. He's under house arrest. You don't learn of his fate. You don't get a nice wrap-up statement. 
Nothing. You've you got to go to extra biblical sources to find out what happens to Paul, to find out about him getting his head cut off. It's like you're watching the finale. You're like, all right, here we go. I, I, I saw the, the first season of Luke, right? Here's the second season. It's Acts, and you're in the finale of season two, and right in the middle of the finale, the episode ends, and you're like, what's going on? Where's the end? Well, I think it's purposeful. It just ends abruptly because the work isn't done. And so here we are, living in the 29th chapter of Acts this morning, doing the same thing they were doing. We're on mission, standing on the empty grave, proclaiming the kingdom, trusting in the power of the Spirit for every inch of ground that we take back for the glory of God. So our understanding of Acts is crucial from the beginning that we see that we are the 29th chapter as the local church. That we understand that as we leave here, we go into our mission field as missionaries on the same mission the apostles were on with the same power of the Spirit behind us, preaching the same kingdom, preaching repentance, preaching forgiveness of sins, preaching Christ. It's the same mission. And so let's join in on it. Let's go all in together as we are getting out of debt and we have this new and exciting time. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to do what the apostles did. We're going to do what the Lord Jesus told us to do. In the power of the Spirit, we're going to preach the kingdom and we are going to trust Him to bring the growth. Let's pray together now. Father, I pray that this church would be a church that is living in the 29th chapter of Acts. It ends abruptly because the story carries on. And Lord, uh, we have people that are going to go teach school tomorrow. We have people that are retired that are going to go play golf tomorrow. We have people that are going to go be an engineer tomorrow and are going to go do HR work tomorrow. We got people that uh, work in the military and are going to go serve our country tomorrow. We got people who are going to work at Ferguson and the shipyard and uh, NASA and all these different places, God, represented in this room. And every one of them, wherever they're going to go, are going on their mission field. Every one of them, where they're going to go, are going in the power of the Spirit and they're witnesses to the empty grave and they're preaching the kingdom. Lord, we're doing the same work. Just like Peter and John, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like us. We have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in their frail hearts, just like us. We're doing the same work. And I pray that this book, Lord, that this study, that this verse-by-verse -verse walk through the book of Acts would put us in a position to be a missionary church that is just obsessed and consumed with seeing people turn away from sin and come uh, back into the kingdom, Lord, citizens of the kingdom, to come and to live under your rule and to, uh, to be worshipers, what you've designed them for. Lord, I pray nothing would get in the way. This is what we want, to see more people worshiping you, people repenting, putting their faith in you, to see the kingdom advancing. We just want your name, God, to, uh, to be honored because you deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.